and welcome to the Changemakers LA podcast. My name is Tanua Thrash Intuk, and I'm the Executive Director of the Local Initiative Support Corporation Los Angeles office. In today's episode, uh, we're going to be talking about Opportunity Zones, and we've got several special guests here with us today to do that. I'd like to welcome George Ashton. George is the Managing Director of Strategic Investments at LISC National. Welcome, George. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. I also have with us today Ron Frierson. Ron is Director of Economic Policy at the Los Angeles Mayor's Office of Economic Development, and he's leading uh, the team around economic development strategy. Ron, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Great. We also have here today Tammy Halevi. She's a senior advisor at the consulting agency Public-Private Strategies. She's currently guiding the investment strategies of the U.S. Jobs and Opportunity Program at the Rockefellers Foundation to encourage private investment in at-risk neighborhoods. So welcome, Tammy. Thanks. It's great to be with you all this afternoon. Yeah. So for our listeners out there, we've got a couple of folks who are in the room, a couple of folks who are on the phone. um, But the whole point of today is to talk about Opportunity Zones. So let's talk a little bit about what they are, how it came about, um, and get into our conversation. So in 2017, there was the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was passed. It ordered changes to real estate tax policy and other asset classes. It also included a provision specifically called the Opportunity Zones Program. Um, This is also known as the Investing and Opportunity Zones Act. It establishes the existence of the Opportunity Zones and what we know now as Opportunity Funds. According to the California Economic Summit, more than 3 million Californians live in 879 federally designated Opportunity Zones. These are disadvantaged communities throughout the state. California has more Opportunity Zones than any other state, and the city of LA alone has 193 Opportunity Zones that have been approved in 13 council districts. So I've kind of talked a little bit about sort of how this came about as far as the Opportunity Zones uh, program. But Tammy, let's get into a little bit more about sort of what are they and what does that mean? And um, how is capital beginning to flow differently because of Opportunity Zones? Sure. So Opportunity Zones are an economic development tool. And as you said, Janua, the intent is to spur economic growth and job creation in distressed communities. And I think the key difference between Opportunity Zones and some other uh, programs that have preceded it is the intent is to mobilize private capital to make long-term investments in the designated census tract. The census tracts, as you described, in California and the rest of the country, were selected by governors in order to uh, pick places that had momentum around investment and really high need. I think that from an investor's point of view, which is really critical, there are three incentives to put capital to work across a range of asset classes in the opportunity zones. So the first piece, if I'm an investor, is a tax deferral. Um, if I place my invest my capital gains investment in an opportunity, opportunity fund and invest in a project, an eligible project in an opportunity zone, I don't have to pay the capital gains on the invested dollars uh, until... 
2026. Um, if I invest for five years uh, and hold it for five years, then I get a 10% step up in basis. So I pay 10% less on the tax than I would have paid otherwise. And if I hold it for seven years, I get 15% of a step up in basis. So from an investor's point of view, it's a deferral on the tax and it's a reduction at the time that I pay. The other component of the incentive from uh, the perspective of private capital is that the uh, gains on the opportunity zone investment itself, if it's held for 10 years, uh, are not taxed. So if I invest in an affordable housing project, I hold it for 10 years, uh, at the time that I uh, exit or transfer the asset, yeah. I don't pay taxes on the on the underlying asset. That is potentially uh, a huge new stream of capital uh, into underserved communities. Uh, the Treasury Secretary says it could be $100 billion. Um, EIG, a, a national think tank on this topic, says that there's probably $6 trillion in unrecognized capital gains. So it's potentially uh, significant new forms of private capital moving into these communities. Wow. So, Tammy, I mean, it is complicated in some sense, but essentially, um, thanks for walking us through that. Uh, you got capital gains and you want to figure out how uh, not to necessarily pay that right away. You invest in an opportunity zone project um, that you know gives you some level of deferral. Uh, you invest long enough, you get a step up in basis of around 15%. And then whatever you have invested, now you've got an opportunity to fully be able to realize whatever um, that investment uh, yields for you after 10 years, if you hold it for at least 10 years, you're able to um, then not have to pay any capital gains taxes on that. Um, and so that represents potentially, as you're saying, trillions of dollars that could be made available to communities and in these zones that otherwise haven't had access to capital. So, George, when I talk about that, you know, that sounds really exciting, right? We've got trillions of dollars that are on their way to these zones and communities that need it most. Um, and yet, are there some problems that uh, could uh, come up um, if, you know, with investing in communities in this way, how do we make sure that opportunity zones are there to solve problems in neighborhoods and cultivate healthy communities? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, these communities for a long time have been starved of uh, investments, equity investments and financing. Um, and that's obviously been to the detriment of economic opportunities, job growth, health uh, health, health uh, um, um, and prosperity within the communities themselves. And so what's promising about the legislation is it does turn on a spigot um, um, and force investors to take a look at communities that they haven't had to look at for a while and start to invest in those communities. Of course, though, as is always the case, whenever you have sort of an open market, good things and bad things can happen as a result of, uh, of that new activity. And so we've been really working with um, local communities, community stakeholders, to try to get them ready and prepared for um, what may come, um, try to get them smart on um, how developers work, and, and really to try to create uh, frameworks that allow them to guide that investment into the appropriate areas. Um, 
some of the problems that you can solve with um, equity investments coming into your area would be um, like incubators, right? So if you want to grow small businesses or you have a food desert, um, you know, um, uh, healthy foods and healthy grocery stores, um, housing issues, right? So if you have um, um, housing pressures in your community. So there are lots of things that, you know, can be positively affected and, and lots of problems that can be, um, can be provided a solution um, by these investments. But, you know, we can't forget that there are lots of things that, you know, luxury hotels and um, other things that we, we'd like not to actually come into these neighborhoods. And so um, it's really been our work um, and for all of us on this call um, to, to think about how we make sure that the investments benefit those that are still in the community and, and provide ladders for them to sort of grow into the economic growth that will come to many of these neighborhoods. Yeah, well, we don't want those uh, high-rise hotels if they're going to displace lots of families and small businesses that are in those neighborhoods. Now, George Lisk has put out a pretty exciting document that is really helping communities and cities uh, think about how to respond to opportunity zones. Can you tell us a little bit about that document? Yeah, absolutely. So we put out uh, the first of three playbooks, um, and really the first one is aimed at community and community stakeholders, and it's how to think about, I mean, you can't uh, forcibly in many locations, you know, tell developers what to do, but you can control what I call the playing field, and that's why it's called a playbook. So there are uh, ways to um, uh, incentivize uh, the positive things you want to happen, and we give some tips in there about expedited permitting um, for projects that are um, in line with what the community needs. Um, incentives, financial and otherwise, to help with financing of projects that um, will help the community grow. And then on the defense side, uh, we talk about ways of having smart zoning and, and smart development ordinances um, to, of course, um, guide the investment in business to the direction that you want to go into. So we try to keep it short, kept it to seven steps, um, and it's an online, uh, you can find it on our website, um, so that that's as folks try new models and things evolve, um, we can continue to, to evolve the content as well. Great. So check out the LISC website for the Opportunity Zones playbook. So Ron, I want to talk a little bit about what's happening here on the local level. Um, so right here in Los Angeles, again, we've got 193 Opportunity Zones already approved here. Uh, quite a number of zones uh, in the area covering a huge area. Um, tell us, what do you think is the sort of greatest opportunity for Opportunity Zones here in Los Angeles? Um, I agree with the other speakers to this point, Tanua, and also I, I really am excited about the great work that LISC is doing and how they are partners with the city as well. We do have 193 designated opportunity zones within our city, but we don't foresee a situation where all of these zones will see investment. Um, I come from the corporate site location world, and there are a lot of different metrics that go into the decision-making decision um, uh, that companies undergo when choosing locations. And I think that's really what's going to drive investment. Um, places that have already seen investment are usually the places that will probably see more investment because no one wants to be the first to market. So the areas where we already see investment in the city, like West Adams and parts of the Arts District, those places will likely see increased investment through Opportunity Zone funds. Um, in regards to the, the job component of how we can 
um, create high wage jobs. Um, you know, I, I'm a private sector guy, and I know that the government doesn't really create jobs. It's the private industry that creates the jobs, and there are certain industries that create jobs that usually pay more, and we can kind of count them on our hands, manufacturing, tech, and things of that sort. So the key is, and the art to this entire process, is for us to find ways to attract investment that can take advantage of the local um, constituency within those areas currently, perhaps providing them training and upskilling so that they can continue to live in those areas. Because if all we see is just the investment side, then it's going to lead to things that we don't want, which is like gentrification and displacement. So we need the upskilling of the community by and large as well. When I say the community, I don't just mean the geographic areas. I mean the actual people that live within those geographic areas as well. So as the investment comes and maybe, you know, this mm-hmm. is bringing in new capital, new kinds of businesses, part of what you think will protect uh, people from gentrification is now being able to access greater skills and opportunities to participate in the economic infrastructure. And that's where the um, the elected officials and councils and, and councilmen and things of that sort, we need to have a true assessment of our our um, workforce, our labor pool, and determine which types of businesses would work well in our communities. And we have to take into account this, which is very important. These funds need to be deployed and have investments in a relatively short period of time still. And they are massive amounts of capital that need to be deployed. So that means that we need to have the types of projects that can absorb that capital. So a small, you know, here and there, you know, uh, small projects may not absorb enough capital to really attract opportunity zone investors. So they may go for something big. But that being said, we want big stuff to happen because the bigger the project, the more they need from the city. And the more they need from the city, the more we can ask for the, from them, from the investor, to you know, in regards to community benefits and things of that sort. Great. Right. And thereby protecting the community Absolutely. in the long run and having the kind of goals you want to see. Absolutely. So, Tammy, let's talk about have you seen uh, projects out there? What, uh, you know, any creative ways of investing in affordable housing and economic development with Opportunity Zone funds? So, Honestly, in most places, the first wave of closed deals were what I would characterize as traditional single-asset real estate deals. Um, And some of that was because the rules weren't clear. And now that the rules on investments and operating businesses are taking shape, that's likely going to be the next wave. And what we're seeing in places around the country, I think smart and creative and community-minded people, in many cases supported by LISC and the playbook that George described, are working on innovative structures to uh, deliver the risk and return expectations that investors want on the one side while protecting community interest and contributing to local wealth building like you described. I think we're seeing a few innovations percolating that I would call out. Um, Workforce housing project, for example, where uh, 5% of the net operating income will be placed in a trust owned by the residents and independently managed for wealth building for them to align incentives. 
um, some sidecar transactions for the upskilling that Ron talked about, uh, both support for training programs and incentives, as well as requirements in transactions for local hiring, for, for hiring from the local community. Um, and in operating businesses, um, some creative uh, sort of options for repurchase of the equity at the end of the period, ways of trying to ensure that on the one hand, the uh, needs, interests, expectations of investors are met, but that local residents uh, are not, as you described, displaced uh, and actually benefit from uh, the investments that are flowing in. So um, as we think about uh, some of this uh, work, George, and, and sort of, you know, some of the urgency and trying to figure out when to invest and what to invest, um, do you think that there still needs to be urgency right now around investing right away? Um, or will do you think Opportunity Zones will be around for a while and uh, we'll have more time to try and figure out how to utilize them to upscale, upskill and invest in neighborhoods that need it most? Well, the way that the legislation is set up, um, folks think about 2019 as potentially the drop-dead date when you need to invest in that's actually, um, I've really spent a lot of time dispelling that rumor. Um, the benefits, you know, of investing from a tax perspective get smaller as you wait longer to invest, but um, there is the, the bulk of those benefits, which is the forgiveness and the tax bill when you're 10 years in the fund, is actually when you can invest until 2026. So you have a lot of time to actually make this happen, but I think, you know, what's nice about the period we're in right now is this is new, this is fresh, folks are focused on it and excited about what it might become. And so we've been trying to leverage that newness, uh, the new shiny object effect to really um, build momentum, um, the momentum we need on the community development side to make more complicated projects happen. So while I say no need to panic on, you know, I tell us to investors all the time, make sure that you find projects that you really believe in because while the incentive is great, to make a um, you know, marginal project work, it's not going to make a, a, a bad project good. Yeah. And so I don't want investors to have bad experiences rushing to get into into deals. And I also you know don't want communities to rush to feel like they just have to take whatever comes their way. So I think there's a balancing act here. But um, in general, I'd say it's good to you know move expeditiously towards your goals. Just final thoughts, Ron. What does success look like um, in opportunity zones for the city of LA? Success with Opportunity Zones would be a situation wherein the true spirit of the Opportunity Zone uh, program is seen um, in tangible ways within distressed communities, traditionally distressed communities. Um, And we, again, our definition of community includes the people who are currently living within that jurisdiction. In many respects, when we think about Opportunity Zone, especially from the investor standpoint, they are looking at geographic territories wherein the property at one point was you know, probably undervalued or pretty inexpensive. But um, they, don't, they may or may not be taking into account the people. So what you will find is that the whole gentrification and displacement issue could be put on steroids for the most part if this isn't managed properly. And that's what we don't want. What we want is a situation where all of the people are able to uh, take advantage of this economic boon as well. Really quickly in that regards, um, 
the real estate component is was the low hanging fruit. It was the most uh, is the most easily understandable portion of the opportunity zone um, program as opposed to direct business investment. The key with direct business investment is the level of risk involved with that. Because although we think about, okay, you can uh, avoid, uh, defer your capital gains tax exposure for a period of years, that's all capital gains again. So that means that that a person who accumulated those gains and decided to put them into this fund, they said, okay, I am not going to pay taxes on this money right now and just put it in my bank account and it's mine. Instead of paying the taxes, I'm going to take this this money and put it into this fund. So their number one um, deal is, most people think, is to realize additional gains and not pay taxes. I would dare to say that their number one deal is not to lose what they invested in the first place. And if you make a direct business investment, that's a risk of losing your original capital gains that you could have put in your pocket after you paid your tax liability. And that's something that a lot of investment funds are paying attention to. Not It still needs to be a very, very safe investment, and they're not going to be really um, uh, willing to take a whole lot of risk. And that in and of itself, again, puts it on um, the communities to understand this, understand the mindset of these funds and things of that sort. And each fund is different, but for the most part, understand the mindset of the funds and come up with projects that are safe and attractive. Great. Tammy, I'm going to give you a chance to weigh in on what does success look like for Opportunity Zones. It's a great question. I I think I would build on um, Ron's point that private investments flow to meet needs in low wealth or distressed communities, but in a way that current residents benefit and that the investments themselves uh, unlock opportunity uh, for residents and a dynamism in places that have been historically and traditionally underinvested. George, I'm going to give you a chance as well. Let's close this out. (laughs) I'm not sure how much new I have to say. I'll say more holistically, um, you know, there's some level of we want growth for these communities, and with growth, there will be some level of gentrification and some level of displacement. I think um, our goal is to try to provide as many folks as we can in the community a chance to be a part of that. And really, sort of the longer-term goal is to have mixed-income societies, right, where you have folks who are living amongst each other um, at different income levels, and that provides the most opportunity to all those within that neighborhood or within that community. So we'd like to you utilize this to mix things up a bit and get folks uh, living next to each other that can help each other out. But, uh, yeah, that would be a great thing to see in, in a lot of these communities. The last thing I'll say, how about this one? If we can extend this to help um, many of the rural communities that have been passed over as well for a long time, that would be a great, that would be like a, a stretch goal for uh, Opportunity Zone. Thank you. I want to thank Tammy, George, and Ron for joining us today to talk about Opportunity Zones. We heard what are they, um, what's the potential for capital gains taxes to be flowing to neighborhoods that need it most, um, but how do we make sure that as that capital flows, it flows in such a way that we protect those communities that are uh, looking for creating healthy, vibrant, mixed-income health uh, neighborhoods. Um, and also, you know, a bit about what are we seeing out there, how quickly uh, are these opportunity zones really moving and closing um, and whether the sense of urgency is really warranted. And our panel has suggested that maybe not. Let's let's go a little slow to make sure we can go fast and do right by both the investors as well as communities.
So this week's Changemakers LA podcast, we're closing today. We appreciate the expert analysis that our guests have provided. Uh, Thanks for all of you out there for joining our conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so that you can know about new episodes and share with your colleagues. Signing off from Los Angeles LISC, I am Tanua Thrash Intook. Thank you for listening to LISC LA's Changemakers LA podcast. This episode was made possible by a generous grant from City National Bank to support economic development for low-income families and communities. If you would like to support LISC LA or learn more about our work, please visit us online at www.lisc.org slash Los hyphen Angeles and follow us on Twitter at LA underscore LISC. Production support was provided by Samantha Salmon and the Donias. You can find the rest of the series on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Subscribe to hear more conversations about the people and places that shape Los Angeles.